Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Punty Hunter. Here's a part two with my good buddy, Everett. Everett, how are you? Oh, I'm living the dream, and yourself, buddy? Oh, not too bad. I'm uh, I'm in and out of the fucking wind, so I can't complain. Well, I was going to say, it's probably a good thing you didn't get blown away today. Oh, God. I think my right eye's full. Uh, got about 10 pounds of sand in it, but, you know, we're, we're here, so. Yeah. It is what it is, unfortunately. I uh I heard from uh, Cody up there in Montana that it was a beautiful day there too. So I guess the Great White North just got one up on us. Just I'd had say. a beautiful I'd... day today. Yes, sir. Well, <laughs> I guess we might need to move up there. I guess if it's going to be that nice, huh? Yeah, no joke. <laughs> that'll uh, that'll dang sure make the guy want to go back, won't it? Oh, just a little bit. Man, oh man, I'm so tired of the ice and the snow and the wind down here. You know, I, I'll say that's the nice thing about uh, the part of Arizona I live in. Uh, it gets cold and snowy, but uh, it usually only lasts about a day. So you get just a little taste of winter just to remind you what winter's like, and then and then it's gone, and it's not too bad. I can't complain. Well, I don't know what that's like because I think we've had – this this snow on the ground since right before Christmas time, and it's been snow on the ground since. No, Which, I'm not going to complain about the moisture, but I tell you what, it sure uh, adds to the workload, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, that that it does, especially when it sticks around for that long. And it melts, and then it freezes again, and then you got a skating rink outside your house. That's always oh. a good time, too. Oh, I know. I, uh, I didn't realize uh, just how bad that stuff does that up there till I moved up there. And God dang, you you get one nice day, and you're like, oh, you bet. And then the next day, it's cold, and like you said, everything's just a skating rink everywhere you go. Well, and the worst is, you know, we just got another little storm come through this week, and kind of a nice fresh little powder on it so it oh, hides yeah. it <laughs> yeah so you just no. have no idea where the next sheet of ice is <laughs> yeah yeah and then when you do find it it's usually because gravity's involved and <laughs> a few cut words are thrown around but that's all right oh you bet you bet oh shoot um well shoot i think uh, i think we left off um we were kind of talking about oh, what what folks are breeding for these days and how they kind of shoot themselves in the foot. So I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd really kind of be interested to hear uh, there at Loftus Livestock what you guys really look for and, and kind of the, the check marks that you guys want to have before you uh, put a stud on a mare or, uh, you know, vice versa. Well... There's uh, a lot of it that goes into it for me. Um, I got in trouble more than once in, in college and in high school for Googling YouTube videos of horses showing uh, when I was trying <laughs> to pick studs when I should have yeah. been doing classwork. But uh, for me, it really varies. Um, I'm going to put this out there first and foremost is I don't breed for color per se, but with my program, I definitely like a stud or a mare that's got some color, uh, but that's just a small part for me, uh, and I, I'm going to preface that because 
a lot of people think that, oh, you know, your stud horse is a bayer own. That's the only reason he's a stud. Not the case. You know, it's definitely a bonus. I'm not going to argue that one bit. Yeah. But from my experience, um, all the horse sales I've gone to, the high sellers always seems to be a Palomino or a Buckskin or a colored up thing. Oh, yeah, every time. And I can almost guarantee you it's not the nicest horse that's in the arena or in the sale that's going to be the one fetching the best price tag. Now, that's not to say that you are you got a lot of really great sorrel horses and bay horses that sell for an awful lot of money, and, and I'm not disputing that one bit. But when you're talking about the breeding game, you're uh, relying on genetics, and genetics are not a certainty. Um, my favorite is a gal that my dad managed the horse farm for. She had two full siblings in the corral with each other. And one's a 14, maybe two, 14-1, 14-2, sorrel mare, and just meaner than the Dickens. And <laughs> she's got a full sister, same stud, same mare, literally a year apart. And her full sister is a, man, she's every bit of 15-3, if not 16 hand mare. Bay Tabiano, loud colored, painted up, tall heaven. Oh, you and bet. You're in your pocket friendly. Just a pleasure to be around. <laughs> really? And, and to me, that was always fascinating. But you look at that with a lot of different things, you know. You look at a litter of pups, you know. Oh, Very yeah. rarely do they all look the same or behave the same. You look at at siblings you know my brother's about the exact opposite of me i don't think he has any desire to be around horses or any of that and he's very book smart he's actually in medical school so you know you look at that you got a damn wannabe cowhand and the dang soon to be doctor out of the same <laughs> cross hey if uh, it makes you feel any better uh my younger brother is a professional poker player and can go make in one tournament uh what i make in a year so oh, i'm God. out here slaving away beating myself to death shooting these damn horses and he uh he'll go sit at a table for a couple of hours and make a year's fucking income so don't 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 feel too bad buddy don't feel too bad well and that's you know i i don't because i think that's a beautiful thing about the world we live in is just how unique it is and, and how really at the end of the day, you know, minute, minute differences can change the end product so drastically. Oh, absolutely. And, and so when I'm looking at, at breeding a stud to a mare, let's say buying a brood mare, there's, I have a lot of check boxes. They gotta, they gotta meet, you know, first and foremost is confirmation. I am, I'm huge on confirmation just because, you know, big old stout, good boned horse is going to hold up and be durable. Whereas those fine boned, small hipped horses, A, they're not going to be able to do as much. And if you do try to use them hard, they're going to fall apart on you a lot quicker. So for me, I'm looking at the confirmation. They got it. I am a huge fan of bone. I want bone, bone, bone because I see a lot of horses out there that are walking around on toothpicks, and to me, that's just not a an animal that's going to hold up. Because at the end of the day, I don't care. You can breed a world champion to world champion and get a puke, 
And all, all day, every day. Genetics are just an educated guess is all they are. Absolutely. So, you know, that's one of the things. Confirmation for me is huge. Uh, I, uh, I honestly, I, I think a good stout boned horse honestly has more eye appeal to me personally. And, and maybe that's personal preference, but shoot, I think there's something to be said for just how much better looking at a good stout, big boned horse looks you know, like you said, rather than, a, you know, some barrel-chested-looking thing walking on toothpicks. Well, and, and my, my biggest thing there is, you know, I I don't know if my horse that I'm going to produce, I don't know if that foal, yeah, he might go into the show ring and he might be a competitive horse. But, but if you're going to look at this realistically, most of these horses are going to go end up being rope horses or ranch horses. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah, you, you can have a good one, but it takes a great one to compete with what's out there and what's being produced and how much money is getting thrown around to make these oh, incredible horses. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I didn't make my program a, a performance horse. I did Loftus Livestock because at the end of the day, yeah, my end goal is I want horses to, to end up performing. I want them to be in the show ring. But but the re- reality of it is there's a lot of great horses out there that their pedigree is phenomenal, their confirmation is phenomenal, but they just didn't have the athletic ability that it takes to compete. And that's not a fault of the breeder. That's not a fault of the trainer. Some horses have it and some horses don't. Oh, I mean, just, just like people. Shoot, I was, you know, I played football for a long time, but uh, the NFL was not in my cards and <laughs> had had nothing to do with uh, how many days I, I skipped the weight room or anything like that. Some people are just born more athletic than others, and the horses are, are no dang different. Exactly. And, and and for me, you know, you got to have that reality going into it because if you're going to sit there and think that every single colt you produce is going to go off and win $100,000, you're just you're setting yourself up for failure. So that – to me is where the confirmation comes in now yes my end goal is performance horses so i want to look at a horse and see okay how do he show did he did he show well how do he hold up you know there's a lot of great horses you know that were great until their four or five year old year and then they fell apart because their confirmation wasn't there well, that's probably, probably not a stud I'm interested in breeding to. Yeah, I'm not arguing he might produce some really great colts. But if I were to take a guess, I'd say they'd probably end up falling apart even if they did make it as a really good show horse. They'll probably follow in his footsteps and fall apart. What I love is there's nothing better than a horse that comes out of the cutting or cow horse industry and they turn around and start roping on him. Because here's my thing. That just screams longevity. That says, hey, I was really hard on this horse's joints and his legs and his muscles in the cow horse and the cutting horse. And he held up to that. And now we're over here jerking steers around. Uh, that, to me, is is a very attractive thing when picking a stud. And You bet. And here's my thing. I'm going to get into the color thing now color cells so oh, if, it does. if there, there's no you can't argue that color cells and if you're trying to run a business you gotta you gotta breed what sells to an extent to an extent absolutely and this is 
this is where I get into this is because, you know, just because you breed to a blue roan or a palomino doesn't mean you're going to get a blue roan or a palomino or, or a colored horse in general. You know, there's still a really good likelihood of you getting a sorrel or a bay or just kind of a basic looking horse, but it bumps your odds up of getting something that is colored. Now, the color to me, I, I go back to all the horse sales I've been to. You you watch an average built kind of average bred horse that's got a pretty hide, and he sells for more than the really well bred or really well built sorrel horse. You you kind of say, okay, I I can see where those guys do go and breed specifically for color. Now I don't condone that because as uh, my dad used to tell me, if you breed for color, you get color, and for the longest time, I didn't understand that because how I perceived that was, well, I've seen a lot of guys breed colored horse studs to colored mares and get a sorrel or a bay colt. Yeah. But when it finally hit me that he's saying, if you're only looking at the color, that's the only thing that you can bank on getting. You're not going to be banking on a confirmationally correct horse or a well-minded horse. And... And, you know, to me, a well-minded horse is just as important as a confirmationally correct horse because if you have a meaner-than-the-Dickens horse it's hard to get along with, I don't care how athletic he is. It's not like he's going to go do anything because people are going to be scared of him and people aren't going to want to mess with him. Absolutely. It doesn't, like you said, doesn't doesn't matter if he's a five-star athlete if nobody wants to be around him because he's just dirty, dirty tough to be around on the ground. Well, and, that, and that's the thing. So for me, you know, when I get into the color talk, you know, I'm not necessarily breeding for the color. I'm I'm trying to find, and, and people say, oh, you, you know, look at the studs you're breeding to. They're all colored. And, and to an extent, yeah. But here's my thing. I've poured hours and hours of, of video viewage of all these horses performing. I've gone over all these horses' pedigrees, looked at what their grandsires grand dams stams sires have all done i i want them to be the complete package well there are some great horses that happen to be colored and yeah i'm gonna obviously lean that way because on the offhand chance that you breed this really good stud to your really good mare and you get a puke but he's got color well now there's still a little bit of value to him okay um so, and I'm not just saying, hey, you go out and find the first roan horse or the first buckskin horse you can find and, and, and say, yeah, that's a good one to breed to. No. I'm telling you, there's, there's a lot. I have lists and lists of hundreds of studs that I've looked at and watched and reviewed their pedigree and have scratched off the list because X, Y, Z, you know, if he didn't hold up, I'm not interested in him. If his progeny didn't go do anything. You know, one of the greats I, I look at is third cutting. You know, you can't argue with a horse that won over $500,000 in the show pen. But when you go and look at all of his babies, um, they thought he was going to be the next great sire. He was going to be the next highbrow cat, and he hasn't produced the damn thing. Uh, yep. And, and, and here's the thing. You look at highbrow cat, when he entered the stud pen, he wasn't like this phenomenal horse, you know. 
it wasn't like they thought he was some incredible athlete. Like, yeah, he won $60,000. That's, that's a good chunk of change. But there were horses that won more than him um, that haven't done anything. And now, look, he, he's what? he made, He's at the $90 million mark? Oh, yeah. I mean, for a horse that only won $60,000, yeah. That's pretty damn incredible. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's always been my understanding that he was honestly just a pretty, pretty average horse, really. Um, well, that was until his genetics came through, you know. He yep. himself, I would argue, is a very average cutting horse. Yep. But when you look at what he has produced, that's where you say, okay, there is something special about him. And it lays in his genetics. And and it goes back, you know, just because he's that great doesn't mean you can take any old mare and breed him to her and, and expect to have a colt that's going to go into the show pen and win $100,000. That's just not how it works. And uh, that's where I'll get into the mare power. I am a mare power nut, you know. A lot of people think, oh, you breed to a great stud, you're going to have something that's marketable. That's not the case. If you bred some triple-bred Hancock mare to highbrow cat, that colt's not going to be worth near as much as a highbrow cat that's out of a playgun daughter, you know. There's right. got to be a level there that that a colt has to be a true grade. And, and I will argue, when you're marketing one, it's a lot easier to market one that checks a lot of boxes instead of one or two boxes. Like, yeah own son of a great horse but what else does he have going for him might be roan because he's a hancock well i i don't think that's a very good check mark to have if you're going to spend that kind of money on a stud fee and and me and this just this me personally i'm not a hancock guy i'll be honest with you me personally and i'm sure i'm not the only one out there like this uh, Hancock's a stripe to me personally. <laughs> well, I see Hancock well, what, on the paper and I'm kind of like, ah, what's he... that saying that they they all tell me? Oh, you just ain't cowboy enough to ride them. No, it's just I don't like the fact that I'll be riding one all damn day and everything's going good, and I can say, man, this is a really good horse. And on the ride back to the trailer, that son of a bitch breaking two, cut in half, and I go, hmm. That was a really long day, and I ended up in the dirt. That's not very enjoyable for me. And, yeah, you know what? If that means I'm not cowboy enough to ride him, then by God, I'm not cowboy enough to ride him. And I'm I okay with it. Well, my thing is, I, I just – there's so many good horses out there. I don't feel like having to prove myself to anyone, you know. No, uh, God, no. I've spent I, more than enough time stomping Bronx out to be out here still trying to prove something. You know, and, and, and when I was 16, hitting the ground wasn't too bad. But, hell, anymore, I hit the ground, and I, it takes me a lot longer to get back up. And That's a fact. <laughs> you know, it just it isn't oh. worth it. You know, I'd rather no. have a horse that I can get along with. Um, and, and here's the thing. I, I don't spend all day in the saddle, and I don't grind rocks from sun up to sun down. So I, I understand where a guy wants a Hancock, and there are some positives of a Hancock. They are they are strong horses. They are impressive. They can go all day and all night and then some. And I, I'm not arguing that one bit. But in the, in the 
reality of things, there's not very many guys that truly need that type of horse. No, there's not. So, um, that what's that old saying? Oh, they're they're great once you get them over the hump. They're awesome once you get them over the hump. They're phenomenal once you get them over that hump. Well, there's there's a lot of bloodlines out there that are phenomenal without ever getting them over a hump. Exactly, and that's I've, my I've rode plenty of grade horses that would grind rocks from sun up to sundown, and I did grind rocks on them sun up to sundown. And, I mean, just a grade, plain Jane-looking, you know, horse that didn't try to buck me off that morning, and... And and yeah, I, I those those horses that guys that I that I worked for in um, Medicine Bow when when you and I run around together, all them horses were Hancock bred, and and sure they were they were dirty tough, and they could go um all day long, but god dang, they were just unpleasant to be around. Well, they're that dirty. you know the ones I've been on, they for being a ranch horse, they're not very cowy. They don't have much cow sense to them, and and for me. That guy had you, six, and he only had one that was Cali. Well, and, and my thing about that is a guy doesn't realize how nice it is to have a horse that'll watch a cow until he rides a horse that'll watch a cow. And then oh, there's yeah. a whole new level of respect to that cow sense. And, and you know, I, I grew up on a racehorse farm. I didn't know cow sense on a horse for a long time. And I started breeding to some cutting horses and some cow horse types and start training those colts. And I go, man, this makes my life a heck of a lot easier when one will watch a cow. And yes, sir, that that plays a lot into it for me, too. And and that goes back to I would I would call that the disposition on one because uh, it's a mentality that they have. I want one that's going to eat a cow. And so, so when I'm, so that is something that you look for in your program. Oh, absolutely. And and I don't want to, I, I don't want to like put a foot in my mouth, but I've talked to a lot of guys and there are some great cutting horses out there and I'm not going to drop names on them just cause they are great. But there are two types of cutting horses that do really well in the show ring. One of them, they're cow eaters. Those are the ones that are cutting the cow because that cow is their, pardon the language, that cow is their bitch. Yep. <laughs> that is attractive to me. I want that type of horse. The Eat other type that. of horse that does really good in the show pen is a horse that's scared of the cow. He's cutting the cow because he's scared of him. And to me, <laughs> yeah, you know what? He might make a pretty good show horse and he might score well in the show pen. But when he comes out of the show pen, you ain't got too much good on him. Yeah. And, and to me, I don't much care for that. Uh, and, and like I said, you know, different strokes for different folks. Everyone likes different things and different little odd ends and pieces to different horses for different reasons. For me, that in those horses is very unattractive to me. And I don't want to breed to that just because I want my horses to have that eat a cow mentality. Absolutely. Um, because I don't, I don't care if you're talking ranching. I don't care if you're talking roping. I don't care if you talk bulldogging. Whatever that horse is doing, if he's got that mentality on making that cow his, it's going to make their job a lot easier. 
And, and for me, I want a horse that makes their job easier. I want, when someone sees a horse with the double mill iron L, I want them to know, like, that sucker is going to eat a cow. And so for me, that's a huge thing. And so, so in long story short, I, I have all those boxes, you know. I want the confirmation, the disposition, the cow-eating mentality. I want the color. Uh, all of it's got to be rolled up into a package. And, and, and the thing is, you know, there are a lot of studs out there that check a lot of the boxes, but not all of them. But mm-hmm. in the world we live in today with all these studs standing to the public, man, you're, you're kidding yourself if you're not breeding to them that check all the boxes for you. And like I said, you know, it's different for every program, but for me, there's so many options that it's silly not to do that. Um, oh, I, I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly when you got that many options, why, why settle for one, you know, when the perfect option is out there and, and I, and I like that you said that there are studs out there that are the complete package. Cause I agree with you. I think there are, there, there are studs out there that are gentle, they're smart. They got a cow eating mentality. They got color. They got confirmation. They got big solid feet. You know, they just got it. They, they are the complete package. It, it does exist. And I think some people seem to think that it doesn't. And so they're just like, Oh, well, I just want one with color. So, you know, I can't check all my boxes anyways. Why, why even try? I'm just going to go for, for one that's pretty. Well, and, and the thing is, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to agree that there is no such thing as the perfect horse. They, they, every single horse out there has got a fault somewhere. Oh, wow. And, and if you can't find that fault, then you're not looking hard enough. And, and, you know, that's one thing, you know, a guy's always partial to his own stock. But here's my thing. How are you going to produce something? better than what you have if you can't pick the faults out of your own stuff because like for me okay i got a mare that's little itty bitty she's like 13 too that's a fault i i don't i don't want them that small like to me that's a pony so <laughs> damn near I'll, I'll fault her there and and she probably lacks a little bone but she's built like a a, a brick shit house incredible in that sense She's got a really good, friendly personality in that sense. She goes back to Gallo del Cielo, which is a great cutting horse, full sibling to Grace Starlight. Uh, and, yes, sir. Uh, yeah. And, and so, to me, that mare, she's got those faults. So, for me, when I'm picking a stud on her, I'm looking for a kind of a bigger horse that's got good bone. Those are the two things I'm really – adding a lot of emphasis on when I'm picking a stud for her. Cause I, I, I have a really good deal with a really good stud horse and um, everyone goes, well, why don't you just breed all your mares to him? And yeah, he is really good. And he is, he's bred phenomenally. He's done phenomenal in the show pen. He's got a great mentality. A couple of the Colts of his I've been around have been just really fun to train. But that horse does not make a great cross on every single one of my mares. And that's why, you know, with with eight different mares, I generally am going to go to eight different stud horses because not every single stud is 
right cross on their every single mare. Absolutely, and, yeah. There's and, and also to me the genetic diversity, and we kind of touched on this last episode. Is we were talking about line breeding. For me, I, I'm trying to get as outcrossed as I can on every single time I breed a mare. You know, if she's a granddaughter or, or daughter of metallic cat, I don't want highbrow cat anywhere on her studs papers because, you know, with all the options we have out there, Shining Spark, Dual Ray, Woody Be Tough, Hot-ish, you got all these other options. Why are you still staying in that gene pool? Right. So, so I look at that pretty majorly because, yeah, some of them are going to make a great cross on that stud. Some of them aren't. I've got a really big mare. She's probably 15, 3. And, and you know, that's that's getting pretty big for a cutting or cow horse. That's absolutely getting big for a cutting horse. Um, and, and, yeah, a cow horse, too. But Thanks I look at her... Well, yeah, and I look at her, and it's like, okay, I need to downsize her a little bit. So when I'm picking a stud for her, I'm I'm going one with a smaller frame that still has everything else going on, right? In a in a perfect world, what? How many hands are you shooting for? Are you shooting for like fourteen two, fourteen three, fifteen on the dot? In an absolute ideal perfect world, what are you shooting for? In an ideal perfect world. Every time I made a cross, I would get a 14-3 hand horse. You bet. Perfect world. Perfect. And, and, and that's just my perfect. I appreciate. <laughs> I can well, appreciate a 14-3 horse. As a, as well, a you, you and I are both kind of on the smaller stature of things. <laughs> kind of both have shorter legs. Yeah. I, 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 my stud horse, is 15-3. I love him to death. But, man, riding him all day, having to get on and off him, opening gates, or on and off him doing X, Y, Z – that that kind of starts tiring out my knee pretty good. Oh, it and, does. It gets old. And here's my thing. You know, 14-3 to me, and this is for me. I mean, there's guys that there's a reason they like a 16-hand horse. because he covers more country, longer strided, whatever. There's guys that like those short, itty-bitty horses, you know. And here's the thing. that It goes back to the world we live in, you know. Everyone likes different things for different reasons. For me, Absolutely. I like a 14-3 horse because you look at a 14-3 horse, he's not too small to be a, a good steer-tripping horse. He's not too small to be a good head horse, but he's not so big that he's too big to be a cutting or cow horse. He's not too big to be, you know, a good using horse as far as getting on and off him all the time. Right, uh, not too big to be a heel horse, or yeah, you know, there's there's that fine line, and I think a fourteen three hand horse, he could kind of go into any area in the western performance and thrive. Where I would argue a a fifteen three hand horse probably isn't going to thrive in the cutting pen. He might make a cow horse, maybe, but for the most part, uh, probably a little bit too big. He'd make a great head horse, great steer-tripping horse probably. Yep. Your little little itty-bitty 13-2 hand horse, he might make a heck of a cutting horse, but is he going to make it as a rope horse? Is he going to hold up? 
Uh, I, I would argue he, he probably would, but there's going to be a lot of people in the industry look over him because, no pun intended, uh, just because he's not quite what they want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, he, he might make of a heck of a little heel horse, but when you get that small, like you said, a lot of people are honestly just going to overlook him. Well, and, and there are, I'm not going to lie, there are, are outliers, but... Oh, every time. But in in an absolute just generalization, yeah, that's too little for a lot of people. Um, and that just, that goes back, you know, every program's different, every program's trying to do something different. And, and my thing is, every time I'm making a cross, I'm just trying to make a cross that regardless of the outcome, regardless of his athletic ability... I want him to at least be able to serve a purpose and, and be proficient at that purpose um, in my program. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of that's the generalization of, of what we're doing here at Loftus Livestock when we're trying to make a cross. Oh, I, that's that's good stuff, man. I, I, I like it. And and I, I like that, shoot, honestly, and, and maybe I, maybe I'm speaking out of hand here. Um, I just, I like that you think that far into a horse's future, you know, I mean, I've, I can say from experience, you know, getting on and off of big horses, you know, I, I rode a, shit, I rode a 16 and a half hand horse in, um, Montana that, God and how I loved him, he was dog gentle and he set you up for a perfect heel shot every time, getting on that son of a bitch or bending down for that heel shot was just... <laughs> kind of a pain in the ass and and i've rode little horses that i needed to get big big stuff you know grab a hold of something big and i honestly just didn't really want to and so and like you said there's always there's always outliers there's always going to be those big horses that are that are just dirty athletic and and fun to ride and those little horses that are just dirty tough and will jerk a bull down shoot ask uh ask cody about a little horse he had named piggy sometime if you get a chance i'll have to do that oh god man that 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 mare was 13 hands if i'm six foot (laughs) and and cody's six foot three you know fucking where's the size 13 shit kicker he's he's, (laughs) so his feet were dragging on the ground oh god dude and that little mare was by god one of the best bull roping horses i've ever seen well, and that goes back to the outliers. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I like that, you, that you're thinking that far ahead. And, and like you said, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect horse. But I like that you're aiming for it because why shouldn't you? Absolutely. And, and here's my thing. There's enough people breeding horses and, and not doing any of that uh, advanced thinking, I should say. They're just breeding for their ideal cross and and yeah there's a chance that you get that every time you breed one but i can guarantee you um from all the mares we've bred i don't think a single one of them gave me the ideal colt you know what i wanted when i made the cross what i envisioned when i made the cross and that's not saying there hasn't been some that have ended up producing something better than what i had originally planned or or that but but on average they're not going to produce you the colored one that's athletic that's perfectly built or xyz they're just gonna kind of be about what the average is gonna be 
And, you know, you look at a horse like Doc Barr, I mean, that's a household name in, in the industry. I mean, everyone knows who Doc Barr is. But what blows my mind is a lot of people don't know the story behind Doc Barr. His sire and his dam were both world champion racehorses, and Doc Barr couldn't catch a cold. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that that is a really good story to have when you when you're breeding, because the thing is, when you produce that on a racehorse farm, that's a flop. That's a puke. That's a dink. That is not what you're going for, right? That is a failure in every sense of the word to them. But see, he just happened to wind up in the right hands to revolutionize the industry, the cow horse, cutting horse industry. And to me, that's something that a lot of people forget about is that you might be breeding for a a horse in a specific discipline, but – you got to remember the foundation behind it. You got to remember the disposition. You got to remember the confirmation because the thing is the odds are that horse is going to a discipline that is not what you were planning on. No, no shooting. If I could tell you how many horses I started with something envisioned and, you know, oh, this is going to be a jam up heel horse. Oh, this would be a, a great calf opener breakaway horse. And, uh, you know, six months later, they don't do nothing but pack an old lady down the trail for a couple of hours, you know, three or four times a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think people need to remember that, honestly, you know, yeah, in a perfect world, yeah, every time you bred your great cutting mare to a great cow horse stud, you're going to get this jam up performance horse. But at the end of the day, odds are he's going to wind up in the hands of a, a team roper or a who knows, a barrel racer, or who, you know. Yeah, yeah. Something you, you, not what you were planning. Um, the, yeah, the you, you just have no idea where that horse is going to go. And that's why, you know, I wish people would take just a, a half freckle more time to, in picking a stud or, or choosing to breed their mare. Because there's a lot of papered mares out there that are, only reason they're being bred is because they have papers. Um, oh, they God. shouldn't be getting bred. Uh, and, and if you, if you are going to be breeding your average old mare, you really have to make sure that you're picking a stud that is, is complimenting her as best as possible and giving her the best chance of producing something better than herself. Because if you're just breeding for that average, you're not helping the industry. You're not helping. No. Quarter horse. I could, uh. It, uh, I could give a great example of why you should be picky about brood mares. So I, I started a little highbrow bred bay mare for a guy that I worked for. Um, oh shoot, it had been a little over a year ago, not quite two years ago now. Um, who I was working for when I met my fiance, and and he had these two little highbrow cat bred mares, and um, one was like a little chromed up sorrel, the other was just. A, a cowboy's bay horse um and that little bay mare was a fucking outlaw i'm here yeah. to tell you that's one of the bronchiest horses i've ever been on i wouldn't ride her without a night latch and, and not toot my own horn to those who are listening I, i'm sticky there's just you know i'm not trying to brag it's just a fact i'm sticky and that's one of the bronchiest fucking horses i've ever sat on and 
And I told him that. I was like, man, you're going to have a hard time selling this horse. She's fucking rank, dude. She doesn't buck every day, but it's close. And when she does, she fucking gets it on. I am scratching tooth and nail to get this horse rode. Well, he was like, oh, well, you know, she's got really nice papers. Maybe I'll just sell her as a broodmare. And I just want everybody out there listening to remember that statement right there. Because do you really want to breed to that? Well, and I always loved there was a a meme or something on Facebook where this cowboy's trying to break this mare and, and she's bucking him off. And so his boss goes, well, let's just throw her in the broodmare pen. After a couple babies, she'll... Uh, She'll settle down. Well, then the next picture is a, a kind of a colt that looks similar to that mare, and it's bucking. And the guy goes, well, I can't figure out why all these colts are so bronchy. I mean, they're all world champion pedigreed horses. Well, that <laughs> that horse that you're talking about is that exact reason behind that. Yep. <laughs> I don't care if it's an own son, own daughter or something. Some of them goes back to genetics. Some of them just don't make the cut, in my opinion. And I, I would rather breed to a horse that's got the confirmation and the disposition over the pedigree all day long. Um, Absolutely. I, 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 that's, and that's why I wanted to tell that story, just so folks re- remember that. Just especially, especially when it comes to mares and, and, and I, I would actually be curious to get your take on this. Um, it's my understanding that um, a lot of a horse's disposition, as as well as a couple of other traits, come very, very, very heavily from the dam and not the sire. Well, and and I'll I'll preface this. Supposedly, someone told me in college that horses are one of the few animals that pass on 60% from the mare, 40% from the stud, not 50-50. Whether that's true or not, I'm not going to say either way, but I will say that those colts learn from their mom. When they're out there with their mom, they're learning behavioral traits, and that could be something as simple as cribbing. I've seen colts that really, you know, Cribbing isn't genetic, and I don't. I would argue that to the day I die. Cribbing is not genetic; it's a learned behavior. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and, and I, I've seen that where a mare has her baby, and, and you know, six months later you wean them, and that baby's standing in the crowd and he's cribbing. Well, he didn't. It's not like he just started cribbing. He saw his mama doing that, and that's why he's doing it. You could um, literally put. You could take a barn of 30 horses and put one cribber in it, and I would bet money by the end of the year a bunch of them be cribbing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, part of that, you got to remember, you know, a horse is a grazing animal, and a lot of these horses, people are complaining about cribbers. Well, if you go and let your horse be a horse, he's not going to crib because if, if he's busy eating all day, just a bite here and a bite there at a time, he doesn't have time to crib. Whereas, absolutely, you think about that, most of these horses today are getting fed once in the morning, once in the evening, right? Which is not what they were anatomically designed to do. They're they're a continuous grazer. So you think about that. 
a horse that's supposed to spend let's call it 80 percent of his time grazing now he's he's getting all of that done in in five percent of his time now he's got 75 percent of time that he's gonna get bored if he's not being used if he's not being worked if he's not using his brain somehow and, and a lot of that i would argue is is bored cribbing out of boredom oh, instead yeah. of you know being stressed or anything like that um so i i'd add that in there to that but yes i would say that the mare contributes more to a, a horse's disposition and men- mentality i would say i guess would be the right word right you know i i've seen mares that were very standoffish with people when you went to catch them they're kind of hard to catch well then those babies are kind of hard to halt or break because they don't want to get caught where i've had mares that are in your pocket friendly and because of that you're out there and you're able to rub on those babies without a halter or anything because they're like oh mom gets scratched by that person i i should walk over there and get scratched on by that person you know and that's a that's a great point actually i i i would bet money that shoot the i can't even remember who it was that told me that to be honest with you it's it's been so long ago now um you know uh, and and he's not the only one I heard it. That was just the first guy I heard it from. Um, yeah, it it probably it, you're exactly right. It probably goes well beyond just the genetic traits that mare passed on to that. Oh, foal. absolutely. And it's more into what do you want that mare to teach that foal? Absolutely, and, and and you know, and and something else. You know, you're talking about that story and. You know, it made me think of a story. Um, one thing to remember in, in breeding animals is maternal instinct can affect animals. Um, it's just like, you know, you might have a really nice stud horse, but if there's a mare in heat, he might become, you know, a dangerous horse to be around. Right. Because, I mean, that's that's a major thing programmed in their head is to pass on their genetics and mother nature man that's kind of number one on their agenda you know it's eat sleep find shelter and and pass on your genes that's what's going through their head well that maternal instinct can kick in and you know i've seen this with dogs and obviously you see countless videos of of cows like this when they have a calf they're they become kind of a dangerous animal because they're protective that maternal instinct kicks in and and you want that to a certain you don't necessarily want them to come after the hand that feeds them but you know a cow that's a little snorty with a coyote or a dog protecting that calf i i take that tenfold one that's going to break your knee probably needs to go but that same thing can happen in mares dad dad told me a story when i was a kid he had a friend had this really nice mare just in your pocket friendly easy to get along with everyone got along with her but he's like man i really want a baby out of her well he bred her and 11 months and a week later here she is she got her foal and he walked out there to feed one morning and didn't even think about it just because that mare had always been he went in there to look at the baby see what he got is it a colt or a filly and that mare grabbed him by the throat dang near killed him and And that's 
number on them horses is is, is that's a, a reality of it man it's just as if not more dangerous than a cow in that aspect um because i ain't ever been bit by a cow but i tell you what those horses they'll break a bone when they bite you and oh, and that's going to be a, a huge defense mechanism for them and and, and it's just one of those things to remember is that maternal instinct can affect them differently. You know, you might have one that doesn't care one bit, and then you might have one that'll like to kill you to, to protect that baby. And, and that's something to just some food for thought. Um, Absolutely. If, if anyone's thinking about getting into the breeding game and they have a really nice mare, just because she's really nice doesn't mean you, you shouldn't be conscious of that change yeah. that can happen. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what I got on breeding horses. And I know I have people that disagree with how I do it and, and what I had to say in that, but that's just my two cents and take it for what it's worth, which is probably half that. (laughs) Oh, shoot. I thought it was really good. I, uh, I I liked that a lot. I, I thought it was really good and I thought you made some really excellent points. Um, so now I suppose we'll transition into a couple more hot topics. You want to talk about getting people to disagree with you and and uh, think you're not worth the shit. Um, well, um, let's kind of start off with uh, long-range hunting because um, I, I kind of enjoy talking about it. It's, I know it's a hot topic to a lot of people. and um, but, well, but I remember I kinda... last time you brought this up, I got a little uh, – little argumentative uh i was a little passionate about this well and 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 i kind of am too and 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 i'm i'm sure there's lots of people listening to this that may not agree with our opinion on it but just for everybody out there listening um we're we're not big fans of it we're not big proponents of long-range hunting Um, well and that's because in my opinion and emphasis on opinion it's not hunting it's shooting yep and and to me that's it's kind of chicken shit if you ask me i Um, would agree with you a hundred percent here's my thing you know is it impressive that you can hit steel at a thousand yards am i going to argue that one bit no absolutely not and and it's like i told you before you're 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 a better shot than me. Like you're you're absolutely a, a better shot than I am. You're a more talented person with a rifle than I am. And they but, probably spent more money on their rifle than you did. But <laughs> oh, I can guarantee you they did that. <laughs> but uh, here's my thing. You know, one of the best examples is that Jimmy John's or whatever. You know, the guy that owns Jimmy John's sandwiches. He shot that yep. monster bull elk at over a thousand yards. And, and let me tell you, he didn't hit him very good. And to me, that bull at a thousand yards, he might know you're there, but he dang sure isn't threatened by you. You're not, you're not even, you know, he might be watching you. Generally, they won't be even at that far. I was just about to say, at a thousand plus, I'll, I'll probably, I'll be the one to die on the hill more often than not. That they don't know you're there. They've got no fucking idea. And, and I'm not going to argue. I've shot a lot of deer at six yards or, or 12 yards that didn't know I was there. But but I'm in their bubble. You know what I mean? That's what separates a hunter from a shooter. 
it takes a lot of skill and practice to get six yards from a deer. I watched me try for the first time this past fall, and I made it to, I think, 92 was the closest range I got. Well, and, and here's the thing. That's a feat in itself. I, I, I would argue that if you can close the, the distance to under 400 yards, you did something because – a lot of these deer anymore hunting's become so popular. All these deer have been pressured one way or another, uh, except maybe the park deer or the right. the suburban deer. But um, I don't know. For me, I, I think long range shooting is great for for practice and and it's a cool thing in itself. But when you add that into hunting. It makes guys take what I would call questionably ethical shots. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the best way to put it. It is, it's a questionable, potentially non-ethical shot. And why, why take that? Because here's my thing, you know, you might be good at the thousand yards hitting that steel plate, but that steel plate can't move. You have that sucker where it is not going to take a step. It's not going to turn. And, and, and here's my thing. All it takes is one step. All, and, and this has happened to me countless times, even close range hunting with a bow. Um, one step can change where that bullet or that arrow hits. And, you know, when it, you're talking that kind of distance, a lot of those are across canyons. Well, just because the wind's doing one thing on your side of the canyon doesn't mean the wind's doing the same thing over there. Absolutely not. The thermal could be entirely, and the directionals could be entirely different. Absolutely. And to me, that right there by itself makes it an unethical shot because you can't control what that animal's going to do. And yeah, you know, guys will argue, well, if he's bedded, Who's to say he's not going to stand up to stretch? Yep. Who, who's to say that, you know, and uh, what goes through his head in that half second before you squeeze the trigger and the three seconds it takes, five seconds it takes for that bullet to get there? And, and yeah, realistically, sometimes probably nothing's going to happen. But also I've seen that multiple times where guys whack them in the guts or something because they took a – a shot and he started to walk and then now you have an unethical shot and now you're a thousand yards away and it's it's hard to take a follow-up absolutely and you know if he goes to move 120 yards now he's out of range for you and now your shot's going to be a guess or or you know xyz here's the thing you know that to me isn't hunting and, and it, it goes back, I, I'd argue that with a lot of guys, and I, I shouldn't say this because I guide, but there's a lot of guys that, that pay someone so they can shoot something. They're not there to the, to hunt. They're there to shoot something. And, 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 and I'm not going to say that I haven't had a lot of clients that were, were in it for the hunt and the experience, not the kill, but there were sure a handful of them that were there to kill something and were awful disappointed if they didn't or... They didn't kill one that was the big enough size or, or whatever. Right. And to me, all that, you guys need to pick up a different hobby because it ain't about the kill and it ain't about no, the, the antlers on the wall. That's a bonus. 
It's, yeah, that's, that's all just, that is. That's icing on the on the cake is all it is. It's a it's a chance to have an incredible adventure and and provide for your family, you know, with your and, bare and hands. See things that people aren't gonna that the average American or average human being isn't gonna see on in their entire lifetime. It's it's about the camaraderie and and the jokes and and giving your buddy some shit when he misses a giant bucket at 14 yards or or xyz you know and and when we get into that movement on the shot that's something that's out of people's control right that you can't control what that animal is going to do unless you have him tied to a tree and and uh i i had a buddy i took him bow hunting for the first time up in Wyoming and I shot a deer. So it was all on him and we were trying to double up and found a really nice buck bedded up in, in kind of a fallen log kind of downfall timber area. And we snuck into 14 yards on that buck and he let an arrow go. And I don't know if the deer heard us or heard the bow go off or what, that deer was up out of his bed and running before the arrow got there. And he was shooting an elite at 60 pounds. I think it was like 330 feet a second. Um, and that arrow, you know, was buried in the tree that that deer was bedded against. So it would have, it would have hit him and it probably would have hit him really well. Yeah. But that deer got up and moved and I've seen that happen you know, on, on YouTube hunting videos and, and they don't really show it on the, the outdoor channel, but it does happen where a deer, deer will wheel to get out of the arrow and it'll hit them in the antler or it'll hit them in the spine or, or any of that. And that's right. not saying that's an unethical shot because you're doing your best, but that's just to show you that even at close range, those animals can move. Oh, I, I, I had it happen to me this past fall, uh, whitetail hunting, you know, took, could have, could have used the rifle, wanted to take my bow and kind of knock the rust off. Cause I hadn't bow hunted in a long time and, and, you know, had a doe come in, got, shoot, I think she was 25 yards. And, um, so I, I top pinned her and, and got drawn and everything and, and she stopped and kind of looked for a split second and I really got my sight picture and no sooner than I got ready to really let that release go she took a step and I hit her square in the guts and and it was not a good hit and I didn't recover and and to your point that's at 25 yards what, and, what can and then happen you're gonna, at a thousand you're, you're gonna get the guys that'll well yeah but that's because you're in their bubble and they know you're there all right well I got a story for you I shot a bull at 30 yards elk hunting and you know i shot him at 30 yards and he didn't know i was there i hit him high because he stepped down he was we were on a slope he stepped down all right so you're saying he only stepped down because he, he knew i was there okay well let's fast forward to now i have a rifle cow tag in my pocket and i go out there and that cow's at 200 yards, and I take a shot, and I hit her. I hit her back because she took a step right when I shot at 200 yards. Yep. Now there's no way that cow knew I was there because where I was at, where the wind was going, 
no idea I was there. She was standing there on the edge of the tree row. And by the time I pulled the trigger, that was the split second that she decided to take a step. Yeah. Well, who, who's to say if at 200 yards they can do that? You're not in her bubble at 200 yards per se. So, so how, how are you going to tell me that at 900 or 1,000 yards that she's not going to step or she's not going to move or, or X, Y, Z could happen? And I'm not saying that it's going to happen every time, but by God, the time that it does happen, it's not going to be pretty. No, and you're really going to kick yourself. I mean, I, I is a, is a you know, is a dang white-tailed doe, and, and not to make light of it per se, but western Oklahoma's covered up in white-tailed does. Nobody will miss her. Honestly, probably did a little bit of a favor to the, the wheatgrass population in that part of the world, but you just feel terrible. You feel you feel awful. Well, and, and here's the thing, man. I don't care if you're talking a world trophy class buck or if you're talking cow or you're talking a doe i don't care what you're talking if you're out there and you're a true hunter you you feel like shit when you wound one or you don't hit one good or it has a slow death you know that's i i would rather miss a giant bull than wound him all day long i i wish i would have missed i'd rather missed and and that's you know there's just like yeah it's frustrating to miss i'm i've been there and stomp your hat in the ground and you're mad at yourself and but i tell you what i'd rather be mad at myself than sit there and and, and be thinking man that that animal is going to be out there suffering tonight and i'm going to be sitting in bed just can't sleep because she's probably getting torn apart by coyotes alive right now and yeah. you know that that ain't a it, it's not a good feeling and and to me when i'm out there it's I'm worried about the ethics behind it, you know. Yes, I realize I'm out there to kill a, a creature. That is, that is one of the goals on the list. While I'm, why I'm out there, that is the end result goal, right? But I want to do it ethically, and I want to do it humanely. And I would argue that the guys, and and I'm not saying that that stuff can't happen when you're close, or you can't, it can't happen, because I. I'm telling you, I've I've been there. I've done it. I've experienced it. It can happen even at close range. But statistically, I would argue that it's a higher likelihood of having it happen the farther out you get. There's more stuff with every added yard to the shot. There's more stuff that can go wrong. Absolutely. There's more wind that you need to account for. There's animal movement that you need to account for. Because here's my thing. My arrow gets to my target at 20 yards a lot quicker than it gets there at 70 yards. My bullet gets to the target a lot quicker at 100 yards than it does 500 yards. Absolutely. That added time is more time for that animal to move. And that's the argument I'm making. Yep. I understand Absolutely. it can happen at any time at any point. I'm sure there's guys that have had that happen rifle hunting under 50 yards and, and had a deer or elk move on the shot. That's I'm not disputing that, but how far is that elk able to move, or that deer able to move between you pulling the trigger and the bullet getting there at a hundred yards versus a thousand? 
Absolutely. I I was just about to say that the thing about being in that close is, you know, it, it the chances of it still being a good a, a kill shot is astronomically better at 100 yards when they take a step versus 1,000 yards and they take a step or two. Because I would argue at 1,000 yards, that shoot, they might take two steps on you. They, they might, yep. you know, there's, it may not just be one step. And, and that's, and that, and, and I don't know, it's just not very sporting in my opinion. And it goes back to the last, the last episode when I was talking about how hunting over a corn feeder is not for me. Cause, cause I'm not out there to kill something. And, and yeah, if you're out there to kill something, then yeah, go set up on the corn feeder at a thousand yards and, and shoot something when it comes in over the corn feeder. You know, if, if that is just kill something and by all means do that, but I'm out there to, and, and for guys yeah, that, that are doing it, I would argue the guys that are taking shots like that, they're out there to kill something. They're wanting to kill something, get something dead. And, and for me, that's very low on the list. I, you know, I raise beef cattle. I, I it's not like I'm going to starve to death if I don't get a deer in the freezer or an elk. And, and I sure like having that meat around and it's sure nice to, to be able to cook some different stuff on occasion, but, uh, that's a very minute aspect for me. Um, absolutely. It's, it's about the hunt and the adventure and not the kill. And that's why I like bow hunts thing much is, is because it, it extends my season because, you know, I, I have enough property to hunt out here in Colorado that, you know, I could, I could probably get a pretty big buck every year with a rifle. But for me, even in that sense, you know, a rifle tag out here, you're looking at a week, maybe two weeks of hunting that the season's even open. Well, with yep. my archery tag, my archery tag's for three months, on and off. Yep. And and that's because they know it takes more time, and it, and you're going to have more failed stocks and more misses than, than a rifle hunt. And, Absolutely. And, and that's why I like like bow hunting more is because it adds a challenge it adds a level of of i guess perseverance you need because yeah after your 10th or 11th failed stock or your third miss on the season you're sitting there man this is frustrating but i tell you what when you end up getting one it's that much sweeter and if you don't get one look at how much more time you got to spend in the woods Absolutely. doing what you, you supposedly love to do absolutely absolutely i i would agree with you 110 percent, and that's that's kind of why i've been leaning towards this um you know getting into backpack hunting and you know you go out there and, and you're out there for 10 days and, and you got your camp on your back and you can move and and just you know just enjoy enjoy the outdoors you know tied down to one spot you know you could go look at a at a different drainage or a different basin or um you know a, a different set of mountains or or whatever the case may be and just really enjoy the hunt and uh, not the kill absolutely and that's my thing altogether. you know i i would take 
if, if you said, hey, you could go kill a big buck in a weekend of hunting, or you can hunt three months and not kill one, I I would have to choose the three three months not killing one, because you know, that yeah, when I was in high school, that was what it was about, you know, and, and even the duck hunting aspect of it, you know, I I do it all, I duck hunt, I I upland bird hunt, I small game hunt, I predator hunt, I deer hunt, I elk hunt, I do all that, but you know, in high school, it was all about let's shoot a limit of ducks, right? Yep. In high school, it was about hey, let's go, let's go shoot a, a deer, and the and the first one that you saw, you, sh- you you shot with your rifle, and that was it, you know. Absolutely. And, and and I would argue that these guys that complain about these trophy hunters or these guys that are passing younger bulls or younger bucks or average bulls or average bucks, to me, that's just adding time in the field. You know, if you are being picky about what you want to harvest, I would argue it's more for the experience than it is to get one killed because I have a friend that that he refuses to shoot a bull elk that's under 300 inches. So every bull he's shot has been over 300 inches. And and there's a lot of years he doesn't kill a bull. Yep. But he hunts the entire season. And that guy is out there honing his skills. Oh, absolutely. And, and to me, there's this, oh, trophy hunting is bad. How is it bad? What part of it's bad? I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're taking a mature animal off the property. You're not killing a young one before it reaches its full potential. You're not shooting... Uh, the first one you see, generally, I mean, I, I'm sure there are guys that have gone out and shot a giant, and it was the first one that they saw. But, but realistically, you know, they're out there spending more time in the field, enjoying nature more. They're taking a mature animal off the property. They are not hurting it one bit. Because here's the thing: realistically, most trophy hunters I know, they generally don't get one killed. They might get one deer killed every three years or, or, yep. or one elk killed every five years because they're out there trophy hunting. So what, yep. what is that worse than the guy that goes out and shoots a raghorn bull or a button spike buck every year? Because uh, I'd argue those are the guys that are causing more problems as far as population. Than- Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of guys who, you know, quote-unquote trophy hunt, a lot of people don't realize how detrimental that some of them, you know, trophy animals can be to the to the gene pool. Some of them old, crusty, big trophy critters get downright mean and protective and, and don't allow for genetic diversity and don't allow for younger, better, more improved genetics, per se, to come into the herd because they kick everything out. Well, and, and to add to it, you know, the guys that I'm talking about that I know personally that trophy hunt, they still eat them. Oh, it's not yeah. like they, they just whack the horns off and leave the cart. You know, they're still putting that animal to use. I and for I me, I one that just whacks the horns off of it and calls it well, good. Well, and that, that's why I love, I love that Steven Ranella. I, I really do enjoy what he's done for, 
for the hunting industry. And, uh, um, that episode in, I think they were in Idaho where he and his buddy both shoot deer His one buddy shoots a small buck and he shoots a big old, like 180 inch four point mule deer. Heck yeah. And they, they did this, the test to see if the eating quality was any difference was any different between the two because a lot of guys when they shoot a small one they're like oh yeah he's just a meat buck and they were like yeah there's really no difference no heck no there's not and to me that right there says all i need to know and and yeah i'm not arguing i've i've eaten some some old ones you know dad shot a a buck that didn't have a tooth left in his head he was old and gnarly and you know I tell you, he was a gamey tasting sucker, and I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> but I, I also shot a doe that was probably a three-year-old doe up in Wyoming. And I was shot her, and even when I was gutting her, I was like, man, she's got a strong aroma to her. And she was gamey as all get out. So I don't think, really, I, I don't, I personally have not experienced it being uh, a bad uh, quality in meat for it to be a trophy animal because like no. I, I would argue that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the cow elk I shot and the six point bull I shot if I if I cooked you a steak from each I guarantee you you wouldn't be able to tell the difference it's not like oh yeah this is from the bull and this is from the cow gaminess uh, comes down to diet diet and care after the kill absolutely that that is what causes gaminess. Um, poor diet and bad handling after it's been taken from the animal. Absolutely, and and that's the thing, you know. You shoot you, and, and one of my best favorite things to to argue is antelope meat, pronghorn antelope. <laughs> I talk to you know. I would say eighty five percent, if not more guys i talk to don't antelope hunt because they're like oh those things are nasty and and most of them have never had it they just hear someone talking about oh it gamey and sagey and 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 yeah i you know i would argue you know i went up to to wyoming and i shot a pronghorn buck that had been eating sagebrush and, and he was pretty strong flavored but every antelope i've ever shot out here in eastern colorado that's been eating short grass and alfalfa probably pretty tasty (laughs) i would i would put it above deer meat i would rather eat an eastern plains antelope than uh a corn-fed nebraska whitetail i would that's uh that's funny cody says the exact same thing he said yeah yeah you bet antelope can get real gamey depending on what they're eating he said but when they're eating just good old short grass and and stuff like that. He said it is absolutely one of my favorite game animals to eat. He oh. he uh, he uh, he's always said that um, care after the kill is is a really really big part in antelope. You really uh, uh, he he said he's a big fan of really jerking the hide as fast as he can. He he thinks the the hide can sure make one gamey, and and I've heard that from several people. Um, but I, the one and only time I've ever really had antelope, it was jerkies. And I know that's not a super great 
example for how an animal eats, but I had heard how gross and nasty it was, and this, that, or the other. Man, that's that's best damn game jerky I've ever ate. Well, I tell you what, next time you're up, you'll have to eat some of my antelope backstrap. I'll I'll cook some steaks up for you, and and you can Absolutely. get a real good idea about what their eating quality is. Because and and that's the thing, you know, he says get the hide off. I, I would argue taking the hide off and getting it cooled down prop appropriately uh, and properly that is number one on an antelope you know because generally antelope you're you're hunting them earlier in the year it's warmer out absolutely so so if you got 10 guys that are trying to kill antelope and you just shoot one and gut him and throw him into the bed of the truck and you run around the rest of the day trying to fill everyone else's tags yeah he's probably not going to eat very good Um, i don't think anything would though with absolutely circumstances i think you'll i think you'd spoil a you know, a mule deer, elk, a white tail. I think you'd ruin a damn beef cow if you did that. Exactly. And, and that that's where I, I get into that conversation with with the game meat. And and it, it happens, you know, for a lot of guys. And uh, I think a lot of it is just they need to learn some basics behind all of that first. It's just like guys that that leave their elk overnight and then they get all that bone, bone spoilage off the meat because they didn't skin it that night they shot it and get it kind of taken care of properly. I mean, that'll happen on a big old elk. And, and you know, elk is phenomenal. Elk is a delicacy for a lot of guys that I know that hunt. And it, it all goes back to pretty basic stuff. But we are getting a little off topic on the long range deal. Oh, that's okay. That's all. That's all right. I I think we covered that really good. Um, one one last little tidbit on uh meat, if you will. I I will say something. I I do want to try. Um, if you come down here and hunt, or I I go up there and get to hunt. I uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're uh you're a big fan of heart. Oh my goodness. Yeah, oh, best cut of meat on an animal. See, and and I hear that over and over and over, and and since I really heard it and have become open minded enough to try, I haven't got one down yet to try it on my own, um, and I'm really I'm really kind of curious to, um, and and see what all the buzz is about because there's just too many people saying it for it to be a fluke. It's it's got to be as good as everybody says. Well, and that's just one of those deals, man. You know. It's just like tongue. I'm a huge tongue guy, too. You know, I grew up with a lot of Hispanic culture around me. So, lengua was a huge thing. You know, lengua street tacos were a oh, yeah. huge deal. Uh, lengua tortas. And, and and for me, like, it, it's a mental thing. It's the same with Rocky Mountain Oysters. I, I think it's a mental thing for a lot of people, and and I, I'll put I'll put this out there that liver is not a mental thing. Liver is nasty. So, <laughs> I'm not a liver guy. I have keep, tried keep liver. The liver keep the liver and onions away from me, and we'll be good. Oh, um, throw hands if you try and get that <laughs> shit under my nose. And, and I think you're absolutely right that it's a mental thing, and I think it goes well beyond um, like tongue and and heart and. I think antelope or, or bear meat is a wonderful example of something that's just a mental game. Somebody hears one time that it's no good, and they'll just never, never even give it a chance. And, and I'm here to tell you, bear meat's about the 
it's it was good. It was damn good. I haven't had enough of it to say it's my favorite yet. Um, I had it in a, as a burger, and I had it as like a chicken fried steak. And God dang it, it was good. Well, and I, and I, I jump on that boat to say it's really good. I, I, I'm a huge fan of pulled bear meat, so I cook it just like I'm cooking a pulled pork sandwich. Um, oh, yeah, and and I really want to try that since he said that. God dang it, it sounds so good. Well, and and my thing is, you know, it, it, it goes back to it's not one size fits all, and, and that goes for all life. That goes for the horses, that goes for ranching that goes for hunting that goes for everything it's not a one size fits all you don't you don't do anything alike uh you don't hunt ducks the same way you hunt deer you don't hunt uh javelina the same way you hunt feral hogs you know there's there's different things you need to know about different species and and the same goes for cooking them and for me i would not do a pulled uh antelope taco but i tell you what you you give me bear meat and i make a pulled bear taco for you you are gonna sit there and be like golly i need to go shoot me a bear oh yeah and and it is it's phenomenal meat and it's so good and and again that goes back to some mental stuff because back in the day bear meat was was a delicacy you know people would spend a lot of money and a lot of time to get bear meat and and, and that has somehow flipped for now eating bears seen as weird. Yeah. And, and to <laughs> me, that's, it's no different than, you know, I, I'll get into the topic of, you know, in China, they eat dogs. Well, I've never had dog, but I wouldn't be opposed to trying one just because, you know, just because our uh, world that we live in kind of makes it this gross nasty thing yeah i don't want to eat my dog because i have a personal relationship with my dog (laughs) yeah but you know in a culture that raises them for meat like we raise cattle how are you going to say that that's bad or disgusting i mean it's just a source of protein in my opinion yep absolutely yeah yeah shoot i tell you one that could get people in the states real hot um, is is horse horse meat? I tried horse meat for the first time uh, a couple months ago at my at my buddy Brett Davis's house, and it was fucking good. I I it was just flat out tasty. I mean, it's, I I enjoyed it every time I've had it, and and you know, again, it goes back to I probably wouldn't want to eat my horse because I have a personal relationship with him, but eating a horse that I have no knowledge of or anything to me, that's just another animal. You know, if they, if they start legalizing the Mustang hunts, I have no problem cutting a big old Mustang backstrap out and, and grilling it up. I, no, I have no problem about that whatsoever. And, and, and maybe this is a little uh, hippy dippy for some people. I could really give a shit. Like, I, I, I love my little grown gelding that I have right now. He he is my lifer. I love that little shit. I'll never get rid of him. To be honest with you, though, I, I, I'd rather eat him. I, I'd yeah. rather put him to use. You know, if he just fell over dead tomorrow, I'd rather put him to use and eat him and, and get some, you know, one last little, it's probably sadistic as this sounds, one little last bit of enjoyment out of that critter. I enjoyed him so much as as a live one 
you know, why not enjoy the gift that he gave me when he fell over dead rather than just waste him and put him in a hole? Well, and to, to add to that, I had a friend in Nebraska uh, that she's married and her horse broke its leg and she thought her husband had, had buried the horse, but actually he'd butchered him or bu- butchered her. And he had served her that sucker as a country fried steak, and she thought it was phenomenal until he told her what it was. And to me, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's a life. It's it's an animal, and 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 you know, not to get religious on you, but uh, in Genesis, uh, we are told that we have dominion over animals, and and he put the animals of the world here for us to utilize and to me it's it's wasteful to to ignore that fact and there there are people around the world that don't know where their next meal is coming from and and to think that we're so privileged to to be able to turn our nose up at certain animals to eat where there are a lot of places in across this world that they don't care what animal it is. They don't care. They give a crap. Yeah, they they just want the protein. And and I think that we as Americans have become very privileged in the sense of only having to eat chicken and pig and and beef, uh, or or being so privileged that you don't have to eat meat to survive. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people probs man (laughs) yeah and and to me i think that's that's one of the things that i guess i'd probably differ from a lot of people in this country is you know at the end of the day an animal is an animal and it's got meat just the same yeah um absolutely what one little last fucking side note on on eating critters i guess i always make the joke i'd be curious to hear your opinion i think i could solve the uh, feral horse problem and world hunger all in one one fell swoop. I would have to agree with you on that, and, and you know, and I you think could, you could you could take them feral horses, and, and sure, the states is not about eating horse anymore. Fine, whatever. That does not change the fact that feral horses are ruining our our natural ranges. And that's that's just a cold hard fact. You can like it or not, horses will eat grass down to dirt, and it will never come back. Well, and, and here's where I'll get I'll get pretty heated on the discussion about wild horses because I'll I'll point this out: Eurasian collared doves, feral hogs, the iguanas in Florida, the Burmese pythons down there, the European starling and the house sparrow are all invasive species. How do we yep. manage them? We kill them with disregard. They are, there are no seasons, no bag limits, hunting year-round, all methods to take, and and that's how we manage the population. But and because the horse the, is seen as a pet, you can't do that. Well, and here's my problem with that is, is you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a wild animal and it needs to be managed. And here's my thing: it, it is a, a money making deal if the government wants to make it a money making deal. Because right now, the wild mustangs cost them a ton of money because of the protests and the, and the the bleeding hearts that are oh, but they're horses, but they're horses. Well, 
I, I loved the argument when I was in high school that, oh, it's, it, it's a sign of, it's a, I don't know, uh, it means a lot to the Native Americans. And, and, you know, I used to think, okay, maybe it does. And then I went down to a reservation, and I'm not going to say which one, but there was a reservation, and, and one of their main sources of income was growing hay. And these guys go out there and just shoot mustangs just to manage the population on the reservation. Absolutely. And they go up to a herd of, of 20 mustangs, and they'd try to kill as many as they could out of that herd. And, and, and you think about a mustang, the problem with horses is they got a solid foot. And I know you know all about horses' feet. Oh, but, yeah. But they're not a cloven-hoofed animal like a, an elk or a deer. So when, when a horse walks through an alfalfa field, even just walking through it, He's mashing it down as he goes. Absolutely. Uh, uh, an elk or a deer with the cloven hoof, he's not really mashing it down. It's going between his toes, and he's pushing it down, but he's not mashing it down. Not and crushing that, it. And, and and that's one of those things you got to look at. And, and on top of that, you know, a horse eats a lot. And when you're not managing the population and trying to let Mother Nature manage it, it's not a pretty sight. You know, you look at all these mustangs that are, dying of starvation or dying of colic because they've been eating twigs and a horse isn't built to be a browser they're not built to eat twigs nope. and, and you see them colicking and, and and dying from that what a miserable way to go this is and, this is where i say it's it's at that point right there where you get to the point where you know they're colicking and dying or starving to death why not ground them puppies up put them out humanely and ethically and ship that meat to somewhere where they could give a shit if it's a horse and and help solve a little bit of the world's problems solve well, one of our own and help solve a little bit of the world's problem well, and i and i don't even argue that don't round them up all right don't round them up but let's manage them like we manage deer and elk and and, and all the other wildlife let's get tags because i know there's a lot of guys out there with a lot of money that would would buy a, a mustang tag just so they could have a shoulder mount of a mustang in their house and and as shitty as that sounds okay make it a program where you sell these tags to manage the population and and have them as part of the deal have to process the meat the same that we do deer and elk the four quarters the back straps the tenderloins get all the usable meat off there and and if if they don't want it they can donate it absolutely have a program that they can donate to or or heck uh, use a dog food program i mean shit that's what they used to do with with horse meat anyway is, is turn dog food but but there's a thing you know if they did that they would be making money off the mustangs instead of having all this where they're losing money and and, and these horses would have a better life as a, an entire herd than they do at the current state and time, you know, you look at those pictures of them right now coming off this hard winter up there in Wyoming, up there in uh, north eastern Nevada. Those horses are, are skin and bones. They and, do not look very good right now. And to me, that's that's more unethical than than managing them through hunting. Absolutely. So I, 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 I hate that the bleeding hearts and the protesters and all that, they are out there making these horses 
die a very miserable, painful death when you could do something much more ethical and, and make money off of it, you know? That's just, I don't know, that's my two cents on that. The Mustang deal is a big problem, and, and I don't believe that anyone who is truly a horse lover, they can't say they're a horse lover and not support horse slaughter for the same reason, you know? You look at all these kill pins, you look at the BLM holding facilities, you look at the BLM training facilities through the, the prison system, they're all at max capacity, man. They're, no one wants these horses. No. No, God, no. Put them, put them to use. Don't just keep feeding them and, and, and spending the taxpayers' money to do so when you could be making money and cut taxes down. I, it's just one of those things, man. It, it I could talk a whole hour and a half on just that. but Oh, me, me too. Uh, me too. And, uh, and that's kind of why I wanted to to delve into that rabbit hole just just for a second we got one more topic that we really wanted to talk about but no i i'm actually kind of glad that the conversation took a turn to that because because like you said how how can you just sit here and tell me that you're a horse lover but you'd rather see that sucker starve to death than go out humanely what what's what's horse loving about that no and and that's Uh, the thing you know and it goes back to what we discussed in the last episode about how, uh, or I don't know if we talked about it in the last episode or if we talked about that when we were just on the phone, but we talked about a horse knows the here and now. He does not thinking about tomorrow. And and when they're dying a slow, painful death like that, it's a miserable time for them. It's not like they're sitting there thinking, oh, there's a, uh, tomorrow's going to be a better day. It's going to be right now sucks. And then when tomorrow rolls around, he's going to be thinking, man, right now sucks. Yep, that's there. They are not linear thinkers. They cannot think about tomorrow, and they cannot think about yesterday. That's just that's just how it is. Um, no, so that was that was good. That was a good tangent. I like that. So the last topic that I really wanted to get into, and 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 we could keep it fairly brief. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your um, input on the kind of here and now of the, of the wolf situation. Um, what are, what are the updates? What's, what's, what's going on? Well, first and foremost, I'll say, Hey, where are the long range hunters come out and take these sons of bitches out? Uh, <laughs> no, um, Colorado and all their brilliance decided to bring wolves back in. And, and to me, that's shouldn't have been a ballot issue. It should have been a, a County issue because these, people that voted it in were all in counties that aren't going to have to deal with the consequences of having these wolves back in the country. And and here's my thing. Back in the day, these animals were not killed out for shits and giggles. It's not like, hey, let's just go kill all the wolves for fun. It was, hey, let's kill all the wolves so our future generations can live a life with less headache and less problem. And, And there's people rolling over in their grave our ancestors are rolling over in their grave because they're seeing man we risked life and limb to, to solve this problem and you guys are just bringing it back willingly and uh you know you look at different states that have done this and it's been a failure every time and i don't know why these people are thinking well this will be different this will be different well 
when you take an apex predator that these aren't the same wolves that were here a hundred years ago. These are a different breed altogether. These wolves kill for fun and people are all oh, wolves kill what they eat or eat what they kill. And, and, and that's no, not they true. Don't. No, they you, don't. You read these stories of these wolf packs hitting a sheep rancher and killing a hundred or 200 lambs in a night. And they don't take a single bite out of any of them. They just kill them for fun because they're just practicing killing. And that to me is how do you look at what happened in, in Wyoming or Montana or Idaho and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that here in the state. In Idaho, one of the key components, there was a, an elk herd that was at like 22,000 elk and there weren't enough hunters killing elk in that unit to manage that population. So they turned wolves loose in there to manage the elk population. Well, see those elk, they, they didn't have time to adjust. They just get these predators dumped on them and they don't know how to defend themselves against these predators. So guess what happens? In a couple of years, that 22,000 dropped down to 2,000. Now they can't even hunt in that unit to hunt. So now when, when they first introduced the wolves in Idaho, they were really specific about management and all that. Well, now... Idaho has a bag limit of 999 wolves a year and no one's going to kill 999 wolves, but that, that puts into perspective, they want the wolves out. They want the wolves killed because they have caused a lot of problems. And, and here in Colorado, that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, one of the biggest incomes for the state is we're one of the few states that have over the counter elk tags. And that is, going to be the first thing to go is the elk and 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 along with that the the state has spent an awful lot of our taxpayer money on building our our moose herd well what what do you think these wolves are going to do to the 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 moose calves this spring or or next spring when the wolves are really here um and and i'm going to bitch about colorado department of wildlife and the cpw on this because they spent so much time and energy denying that there were wolves here. Because we've had wolves here in the states, oh, I, in the state of Colorado for a while, that have I, migrated from Yellowstone. I saw but, one jump across the road in front of me in Walden, Colorado in 2016 or 17. Yeah. But if you would have called Game and Fish, they'd have told you it was just a coyote. Oh yeah, just a great big fucking solid black coyote. You you yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, three times the size of a normal coyote. But yeah. yeah, you're right. It was a coyote. No, and I, and I I would say this because myself, I saw I saw a big lone black male in Granby when I was up there cowboying for the X quarter circle, and you know when I saw him, I there's no there's no doubt of what it was. He wasn't. He was loping like a horse. He was huge. Oh yeah. He, it wasn't a coyote. And and the the CPW really shot themselves in the foot when they refused to accept that there were m- wolves naturally migrated here because that's what allowed it to get on the ballot. If they would have just accepted that hey, the wolves are naturally coming in, it wouldn't have made it on the ballot. They refused to say they they kept deny deny deny. 
And then once it made it on the ballot, they kept posting, trying to show people that, hey, there are already wolves here. Like they started showing all the data and all the sightings and all this. And it was too late at that point because people are going to vote on it. And yeah. and the, the people that voted on it are the Boulderites and the Denverites that they think, oh, man, I go camping once a year up in the mountains. How cool would it be to go see a wolf? And they don't understand the reality of having wolves here. You know, the wolves that are already here are killing calves on these ranches up there in Walden and up there. And, 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 and it's... Yeah, it's North, North Park is really getting kind of slammed. Well, 16 calves in one one weekend is what the one rancher reported. And, yeah. And, and it was it was recorded. I mean, there, there was no denying that it was wolf kills. And to think that we're going to reintroduce the wolves, it's just going to be a bloodbath. And uh, unfortunately there's nothing we can do to stop it. But I will say the CPW did step up. And when they started talking about where they're planning on relocating the wolves, they're aiming it towards what did they say? Vale, Steamboat, and Aspen. And I think, yeah, where all those skiers and, and hikers and mountain bikers want to go and recreate and let them deal with the wolves. Let them, and, and here's the thing, and this sounds terrible, but one of them's going to get attacked, if not more than one. And, and then we're going to have a real problem on our hands. And, and it's all going to be self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's what's frustrating about the entirety of the situation is, you know, it should have been a county issue based on the counties that they were wanting to introduce the wolves in. Because they wanted to take the wolves to these ranching communities that were bordering national forests. And, and, and to me, that's a problem, is if you're not having to live with it day to day, you should get to vote on it. You should not have a voice on the subject. Yeah. It, it should have been a county matter. It shouldn't have been a, a state matter. Mainly because these people don't understand the real world and how the real world works. And that, you know, if you said you were turning something loose in their, their uh, corporate offices that was going to take money out of their bank account on a daily basis... And you never knew when and you never knew how much they were going to take in one night. But they just had the ability to do it whenever they wanted, however they wanted. They wouldn't want that in their corporate office. But sure, shit, us ranchers can have it on our day-to-day life affecting our income. And to me, that's uncomprehendable because I was always taught from a little age, do unto others as you want done to yourself. Yes, sir. And I wouldn't want someone to have to worry about their income in that manner. Yet it's okay for them to have us thinking that, like that, being worried about that. It's already hard to make money in this industry, oh, and now God. you're going to bring money. in a problem. And and again, I don't think the state realizes how much money and revenue they're going to lose from the elk tags. You know, when these when the elk populations start dwindling the over-the-counter tags are going to disappear. Well, with that over-the-counter tags, you're going to get the not only the tag money, which is, I, I don't know what it is for a non-resident, probably close to $700 just for the tag, right? Oh, I, yeah, I guarantee you. 
and, 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 and I don't know how many thousands of hunters come to the state of Colorado to hunt elk uh, between archery and, and the rifle hunts, but it's a lot. And you think they're not going to be eating at restaurants and diners in the state. They're not going to be staying at hotels in the state. They're not going to be spending money in the state like they were when we have the over-the-counter tags. And, um, you know, that's going to hurt the entirety of the state. It's not just going to hurt the rancher. And, and I'm not saying that without elk hunters that these companies and these businesses wouldn't survive, but that's a big They're going to feel it. Yeah, they're going to feel it. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, hotels and motels in, in, in elk hunting areas because they make their living during those elk seasons. That, that's wow. what they make their income on for the year. And, and that's just not going to hold up because no one's going to go to Natarita or uh, what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Uh, South of Walden. Um, Oh shoot! Um, God dang it! What is that little town? Um, it's itty bitty. It's drive through, but it's got a couple motels in it. Uh, God dang it! It's like what, like twenty twenty miles south of there, thirty mm-hmm. miles south there. Not very. Right. Dang it! I can't remember. I know exactly which little town you're talking about. You drive through it, uh, going to Fraser. Yep. Yep. God, I wish I could remember. Anyways, towns like that, they don't see the the visitors like you know Aspen and steamboat and all that you know and, and it, that's who it's gonna hurt it's the little guy and and that's the problem with all of that and it i don't know it's just unbelievable that we have all this data and all these records from these other states that have done the exact same thing and it has been a failure every time and here we are just saying, yeah, open the doors. Let's have it happen to us, too. Why not? The The thing about it is, is, you know, I, uh, I, I said on the episode with me and Cody, we talked about it a little bit, um, the wolf and, and grizzly bear situation in Montana. There, There is undeniable data that shows a small amount of wolves in an ecosystem can be very beneficial to that ecosystem. It can be there. There is undeniable data about that. The, the problem is, is they are so hard to manage to that point because they're just so fucking smart and so fucking sneaky and so God dang tough and, and, um, resourceful. Uh, I, I would, I would have to agree with you at the end of the day, I'm always going to lean towards just don't do it at all. Cause, cause the likelihood of being able to manage them to the numbers that is healthy for the ecosystem is, is slim to none. And, and you know, like Montana, lets a non-resident, you can take 10, you can kill 10, you can trap uh, or uh, kill five and, and trap five. And the, the problem is that there's just not enough dedicated wolf hunters. Well, and here's my thing. If you want to be an effective, I, I'll say this. There's not very many guys that are, are effective at that. And, and you know, here in the state of Colorado, we're not allowed to trap coyotes. So there's not even guys that know how to trap coyotes, let alone wolves, if we get to that point. Right. And, and you look at those states, you know, that have wolves that you can trap. There's 
there's very elite few that are consistently harvesting wolves. Exactly. And to, so to me, hard to manage them. That is is a problem, and and it's not. It's just like the wolves that have naturally come, you know, naturally migrated down one at a time, starting these small packs. It's giving these elk time, these moose time, these deer time to get accustomed to this new predator and learn how to live with them and deal with them. Now, when you just dump a pack and that it can hunt together effectively, you're looking at, at a detrimental thing. That's it's like telling a, a damn uh, veteran Navy SEAL to, to, to go in and, and fight, I don't know, what is that, ROTC officers in the college? Yeah, yeah, JROTC. <laughs> He's going to go in there and beat the shit out of every single one of them. Because he has skills that those guys are not ready for. And it's the same thing. You're dumping these apex predators on a prey animal that don't have the skills on how to handle this particular predator. And that is a recipe for disaster in itself. Absolutely. No, I would agree with that whole wholeheartedly. Like I said, it's just... Um, it's- it, it's so they're so hard to manage they're so smart they're so good at what they do and there is and no denying that they kill for fun they just fucking do you cannot deny that and so yeah why why just dump a, a pack in there like you said that can already hunt and kill efficiently together on on animals that have never had to evade that predator with you know from my understanding, no management plan whatsoever. No, no. Um, and they're all going to have, now I'm going to add this in, every wolf getting turned out is going to have a radio caller with a heartbeat monitor on them. So if anyone has the bright idea of shooting one, don't. Um, you'll get busted. <laughs> you, you'll get hammered quick, fast, and in a hurry. And... It's not worth it. I, I think it's going to be one of those things. We, each state's just going to have to live with the consequences of bringing this in. And it's something that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the ranchers in the country uh, start looking at moving their outfits to different states. Uh, there's already a lot of outfits wanting to get out of Colorado because it's not a very ag-friendly state anymore. And, and when you see that the state says, yeah, let's let's add this in, yeah, it, it's going to change a lot of things, and, and unfortunately, uh, not for the better, uh, in uh, my opinion. Like, uh, I, I, more kudos I'll, I'll give to Montana in, in the, the wolf aspect is, is my understanding, if you, if you see a wolf on your property in pursuit of your livestock, you can drop that son of a bitch, no questions asked, no depredation tag, no nothing. You have to immediately report it and, and have a guy come out and, and go through the whole rigmarole, but at least you can defend your livestock. 
Well, and see, and, and from my understanding, from what I have been told, is if you catch them actively killing your livestock, you're still not allowed to kill them. That means if, if you went out to do heifer checks one night and you got a heifer cabin and there's a pack of wolves attacking her, you just have to sit there and watch them do it. And to me, I, I would be the first to admit that I'm not going to watch them do it. No, fuck no. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what rancher or cattleman you talk to, what sheep herder you talk to. If someone is or something is hurting their animals, they're going to neutralize the situation. And, and, and they'll deal with the repercussions, and there's going to be repercussions because they'll take that story and run with it 10 ways to Sunday and paint the rancher or the sheepman or, or, or whoever in a very bad light. And unfortunately, we are outnumbered anymore. There are more people that don't produce food than there are that do. And unfortunately, that means our voice is a lot quieter than the group of dipshits that are standing there in, in Denver holding their posters up saying, you know, hopefully that, that rancher or that farmer gets shot like he shot that wolf. You know, it, it gets nasty really quick, really fast. And, and it, seeing that done to, to the ranchers on the border of Yellowstone when they shot the wolf that had killed 17 lambs in a night for the one guy, and he got a depredation tag, and he shot a wolf. And he, he had to pretty much go into hiding because people wanted to kill him over it. Yep, absolutely. For, for Even what? though he had a depredation tag, he was in his legal rights to take that wolf. And, and here's the thing. He was in his legal rights. You watch one of these guys that is not in his legal right, and he's just protecting his livelihood and his animals. They're going to crucify him. They're going to hang him. They're going to freaking lynch him. Absolutely. And, and that, to me, is disheartening. And, uh, and it's a shame. But I guess we'll just have to strap in and see what this ride takes us on. And, and, and you know what? I guess if in the end of the day, if in 15, 20 years, it means that we get our act together where we realize, hey, we need to manage these predators and it allows us to start trapping again all the fur bears and and allows us to manage the wildlife in a more efficient manner, then I guess all in due time. Um because, yeah, that's that's what it's going to boil down to. And it's gonna all it's going to take is is one kid to get attacked in Estes Park or, or one uh, person to get attacked snowboarding. And I think that'll be what changes it. But until then, we're just going to have to kind of deal with it. Yeah, you, you sure hope so. But then again, you keep hearing about grizzly bear attacks in Montana. You better damn sure not shoot a fucking grizzly bear in Montana. That is, that's a that's a shitty fucking time right there shooting a grizzly in Montana and shit. I I've heard of five attacks in the last year and they still don't have a management plan. So, you like you said, you just gotta strap in and 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 sure hope for the best. And what else can you do? <laughs> I mean, it'll be what it'll be, and and I guess we'll just ride it out and. Worst comes to worst, I guess I'm going to move down there to Arizona with you. 
I was just about to say, worst <laughs> comes to worst. I uh, I know a guy who says the weather's pretty nice this time of year. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, shoot, buddy. Glad we uh, glad we got to finish this up. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and and uh, getting to do a little bit of planning off air for some for some future adventures. I I can't wait. Um, just kind of here at the end of the show, gonna uh, shout out um, Tuffy uh gam over it you can't see them from the road uh everett that's the that's the guy that kind of really helped me get set up to get this going um and i've been wanting to do it for a long time so just again gonna say thanks thanks to him for for giving me the knowledge and the push to get this started and man thanks thanks for coming on it's been a pleasure well thank you for having me it's been wonderful chatting and and it's been nice to to speak on some topics that I feel very passionately about and uh, I look forward to our future adventures and and I sure look forward to to listening to future uh, episodes on this podcast and I'm really proud of what you've done here and and really look forward to where you take it man awesome well I sure appreciate it I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my darndest anyways (laughs) heck yeah buddy that's all we can all do right that's that's it that's all we can do well shoot i i reckon we'll uh we'll wrap it up and and we'll be in touch buddy sounds good well you have a great night and i look forward to chatting with you next sir